So Paul is telling young Timothy how to have church. And he says there last week, first of all, the, the church, when you think of a church, now we often think of buildings and crosses on the top of them. And when Jesus was dying on the cross and he said, I will build my church, I don't think he was thinking of the Western cultured church where 99% of everything hinges on Sunday morning. And then you sort of live your life until the next Sunday morning. I don't think that's what Christ was building. I don't think that's what he was intending. Um, and I think that we, you know, for a couple hundred years here in America, we sort of took that from England and Europe, and they got it from Germany before that. But in Germany, it died out. In England, it died out. And now in America, it's dying out. And I think it's been fragile. I think our church in America, uh, we're right on line about 30 years, 40 years behind England of the death of the church. Uh, today you go to England, you see some of these beautiful church buildings and their bars, their nightclubs, their mosque. Um, and you finally find one that's an actual church and it will seat maybe 500, 1,000 people and there's 10 people at church. That's what it's been like for 20 years, 30 years in England. And, and we're sort of headed, and I think now with this COVID, I think we have realized how fragile the church in America really is. That our last little thing that we held on to was Sunday morning church. And when that didn't happen, it was sort of like, well, what do I do? Well, you can read your Bible. <laughs> you can pray. You can evangelize. You can share the gospel. You can... You can disciple other people. Um, and, you know, I, I do have to say it's pretty cool that, you know, one of the things the Lord said before he came is that the gospel would go to the four corners of the earth. And, you know, most churches in the world were not live streaming. <laughs> and now all the churches are live streaming. I mean, literally, you may be in a hut in India or in Africa and you are live streaming. I'm not joking. And, and so if you look at every live stream as a fishing pole in the water, the percent of us catching a fish has gone up tremendously just by the fact that so many people are right in Satan's domain. He's the prince of the power of the air. He likes the air. He likes to keep the air. He likes the air waves whether it's television or radio or anything else, he, he claims it as his own. And we are right in his living room, and he hates it. And so I, I think some good things have come out of it, but I, I do think that it's a challenging thing for everybody in the westernized cultural mentality of church to have to sort things out in their own heart to say, what, what really is it, Lord, that's most important to you? And I think we've come here. Where we're at in the Word is where we're at. And I really think this is where we're at, not just here in Los Alamitos, but I think in America, in the world, we're back to saying, let's rethink church. What is it we're supposed to be doing? What's the most important things? And what am I supposed to be doing is, is showing up and sitting in a pew and trying to pay attention and, 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 you know, looking at my watch and hoping the guy 
wraps it up quicker than I really think he's going to. Um, and, and, you know, say hi to a few people, but to try to get to the car as quick as possible. I, I think that has been an unhealthy thing for a long time. And I think we've endured it because we can build the big buildings and we can have the big youth groups and we can do a lot of cool things in the name of Christ without us really going back and saying, Lord, not what we want, not what we like, but what is your picture of the church? When you were on the cross, when you said, I'm going to build my church, what is it you were thinking? Christ loves the church. He died for the church, it tells us. And the church is his bride. Okay, Lord, what is it? He tells us here. We learned it last week. First of all, the church would be about prayer more than anything Jesus twice cleansed the temple turning over the tables and getting a whip and running people out and it said the zeal for his house his father's house ate him up now that father's house was built by a wicked man Herod but it was still a place where they were putting his father's name and that was good enough for Jesus you're, you're worshiping God here in this place so if you're worshiping God here in this place my father's house is to be a house of what? Prayer. Prayer. He could have said singing. He could have said worship. He could have said teaching. Discipleship, evangelism. He could have said anything he wanted. He could have said even three or four things. Hey, my father's house is to be a house of worship and teaching and prayer. And We wouldn't have questioned it. But both times, the beginning of his ministry, end of his ministry, he cleansed the temple, and both times he said the same thing that my Father's house is to be a house of prayer. So we shouldn't be surprised here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he tells Timothy, okay, if you want to build a church that Jesus died for, his bride, what he is doing, he did it, that it would be a place of prayer. And I'll just have to say it. Out of all the Christian duties, if we said Christian duties as reading the Bible and praying and sharing our faith or whatever the toughest of all of them is prayer isn't it i mean i my pastor chuck repeatedly said i my greatest regret is i don't pray as i ought until things start going bad man then i am a prayer warrior uh -huh. <laughs> and my heart gets purified through prayer i'm i'm more holy I, i'm more spiritually attuned I, I'm reading the Bible more when I pray. I, I, I find all these things, and then I get over the, the trial, and I go right back to that low common denominator where I'm praying for food and a few other prayers here and there and, 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 and not really spending time seeking God in prayer. And so I think that if we try to be God's church, I think we'll find ourselves repenting saying, God, help me, I, I'm not the Christian. You died on the cross to be. I am a Christian, I believe in you, I know I'm going to heaven, but right now I guess there's so much worldliness in me that I, I, I don't cherish sacred things. There, there's so much I have, because we're in America, the richest planet on earth, and because we're not poor, we don't have to worry about the next meal. You know, those who are poor, it says in James, are rich in faith. And maybe I'm not rich in faith because I'm not poor. Well, COVID's going to solve that for about two-thirds of the people. <laughs> 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 
But, but either way, whatever our circumstance, we, we, we have to look in the mirror and, and simply say, Lord, the church you want is a house of prayer, and I am not that person. Help me. I want to be that person. I want to be a person who prays. Well, we looked at that in verse 1 last week and had a fabulous time seeing so many people's prayer and the power of prayer. And he, he breaks it down into four areas, supplication. It's an earnest praying. It's the number one thing on the list, this passionate seeking the face of God. Prayers, plural, just praying without ceasing, praying for the food, praying before you go to sleep, praying when you wake up, just praying without ceasing, right? I mean, there's just sort of Never a time you're not praying. And, and you're sort of living that life. Paul said, I pray with my mind, and I pray when my, my mind's unfruitful. Sometimes I'm just crying out to God, and I'm not even consciously doing it. I'm thinking about doing something else, but I real catch myself going, man, I'm crying out to God right now in my spirit. And, and I didn't consciously was doing it, but I was praying. And, and of course, in reference to that, he had speaking in tongues as well. And then intercessions. This is an intimate thing. This is where you are intimately involved in somebody else's life and you're bearing their burden and you're praying for them harder than you would pray for yourself. Because there's really not anybody we pray harder for than ourselves, right? <laughs> um, and, and I think in this, and I, and I have so, so I, I grew up as a kid reading missionary story after missionary story. I don't think there's a book on a missionary on the part of the world I haven't read, maybe two or three in for each area in the world. I, 12 years old, I was, couldn't get enough of them. But one story that would be pretty common would be somebody on, in America or another part of the world would just wake up out of their sleep and just start praying for somebody that comes to mind on the other side of the planet, a missionary. Or they're driving down the, the freeway and their heart's gripped and they just start crying out to God for another person. And then to find out later, at that very moment, what they were going through. You know, at 3.02, I just, whoa, I just like, just started crying out to, to God uh, on, on your behalf. What was going on at 3.03 yesterday, you know, at, this is exactly at that time. And, and I love that, just to be in the Spirit, just be a tool of God, that He can, we're, we're just steered by God. We're, we're, we're a gentle spirit. We're in tune spirit. And God can just bump us easily into that place where we're able to let God's Spirit speak to us about somebody else's need. And then, of course, giving thanks. Prayer isn't to be a drudgery thing. And, and I'll tell you what, I, you know, I, I've done a lot of funerals, and I've done a lot of funerals for Catholics, people, you know, people in our church, they want their... And they bring the priest in the night before to do all the Hail Marys to get him out of purgatory. And I, I'm not trying to be funny or sarcastic or, or anything, but they're in there, you know, Hail Mary, full of grave, and they're doing hundreds of these things. And, and I'll tell you, it's, it's just, to me, it seems demonic. It, it, you know, Jesus said, don't pray with vain repetition, thinking about your many words. That'll move me to answer your prayer more. But it's it, it just, it's such drudgery. 
It's sort of like we're going to twist your arm, God, until you give us what we want. When God wants to give us everything, <laughs> like a father, a child, more than we want to receive it, he wants to give it to us. And so every prayer should be with that in mind. We're talking to our dad. He's in heaven, so hallowed be his name, holy is he, but he's our dad. Hey, dad, God, hey, you know, reverence too. But just a rejoicing that you're going to do exceedingly, abundantly above all we could ask or think. And then he ends that verse 1 by saying this. So supplications, prayers, and intercessions, giving of thanks be made for what? All men. So we need to explore this tonight. Because maybe there's some men we're leaving out. Now I would like to say this is referring to mankind. Okay? Uh, so it's not just saying forget the women. They're so holy they don't need prayer anyway. <laughs> um, sort of the truth. But... Uh, um, the men need a lot more prayer than women. I'll, I'll just say that. <laughs> but we, uh, for mankind. You know, you know I love it in, in the Lord's Prayer. It seems like the Lord's telling us first to pray for ourselves. You know, Father, forgive me, and then give me a heart to forgive others. It's almost like, fill me up, and then I can splash it onto others. And that seems to be uh, Jesus' teaching on prayer, you know? Like Father Abraham, I'll bless you, Father Abraham, and then after you're blessed, you're soaking in blessing, then you'll be a blessing to the whole world. And so, um, pray for yourself. Don't, don't feel bad about that, right? Get forgiven, get cleansed, get filled with the Spirit, and, and then now with that fullness of God, the fullness of being forgiven, the fullness of, of knowing the Lord rejoices in you, now begin to pray. Pray for your family. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your church. Pray for other ministries and ministers. I think the, the church is, is the number one target of our prayer after ourselves and our own family. But then we want to go to all men. We want, and, and as we're going to go on in these verses, we're going to see it's about evangelism. That when he's talking about praying, he's going to say the end result is men getting saved. And so we want to pray for our friends and our co-workers and others we come in regular contact with. At the store, at the gas station, at the beauty shop, at the golf course, at wherever you go to regularly. And you're seeing these people regularly. And, and you, you don't know if they're in the Lord or not. Just pray and start asking God to give you a heart to, to pray for them. And then pray for your enemies. <laughs> pray for those we have conflict with. A lot of times it's not us creating the conflict. They're a conflict with us. But nevertheless, there's a conflict there. Maybe in the neighborhood, maybe at work, maybe it's in your family. And uh, or maybe people that annoy us or people who are standing against us. I think it's so important because as we pray for them, pray for them what? Pray for them to be blessed. Pray for God to open the windows of heaven and pour it upon them. Pray, pray for their prosperity even though they're your enemy, even though they're in conflict, even though they're trying to damage you. You're praying for blessings upon them. It keeps our heart 
from getting wicked. Now he explains in particular in verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. So praying for the king, and you say, wow, this is a hard thing. When Paul wrote this, he had no idea what we would confront here in California. You know, it's like, okay, he had Nero, guys, okay? He, he had this guy that literally would impel Christians and set them on fire to have light while he drove his chariot around uh, in his courtyard. He was a wicked man. And Paul says, pray for them and everybody on down underneath them. And not, not to them. That's what they wanted. The Caesars wanted us to pray to them. But pray for them. In Romans 13.1, again, it's hard to imagine Paul saying this, knowing that he would be going to Rome and dying eventually in Rome. But in Romans 13.1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is none authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. So we know God's sovereign, right? So either he has done it or he's allowed it. But either way, he knew it before the foundations of the world. God is not surprised. He's like, man, I plan on a Republican ruling California for the next four years. Man, I'm sorry about that, guys. You know, <laughs> nothing's taken the Lord by surprise, right? He knows what's going on. And uh, the early church is interesting looking at their attitude. Tertullian explained it this way. We pray for all the emperors that God may grant them a long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, a vigorous troops, faithful senate, an obedient people, that the whole world may be in peace, that God may grant both to Caesar and to every man the accomplishment of their just desires. Wow. What a prayer to pray. The ancient church who experienced some of the worst persecution through Christless rulers had an incredible heart of prayer towards those in authority. Many of them were tyrannical, disrespectful to God and to God's people. And uh, they discovered this. If they didn't pray for those in authority, that their hearts began to get bitter. That if, if anything else, I'm getting angry and frustrated and mad and I, I want to act in the flesh to quench these whole line of evil, evil leaders. You know, it's not just Caesar up there. It's he, he's emboldening everybody under him to be equally e evil, especially to the Jews, especially to those who have become Christians through a Jewish Messiah. And so God has not commanded us to pray for their death or their removal or, or, you know, for somebody to overthrow them and kill them or, you know, uh, no. The, the prayer was to bless them. Peter, interesting, says something very similar in 1 Peter 2, verse 13 to 17. Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for what? The Lord's sake. Whether the kings are supreme or to governors, or to those who are sent by him to punish of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, 
that you by doing good may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using our liberty as a cloak of vice, but as bondservants of God. Here it is. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the king. And so the church today, if we took the time and energy it spends that we spend on political maneuvering, lobbying, and poured that energy into intercessory prayer, we might see a profound impact on our nation. Think about this. Have we forgotten 2 Corinthians 10.4? For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or of this earth, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And let's not forget the key verse of 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Our wickedness may not be as wicked as the world around us, but it's not holy as Jesus is holy. So we have slid from being walking and following Christ and so if we have the, the heart of God and His nature to just start seeking His face, He promises He'll heal the land. So we have a lot of people in authority, politicians, presidents, managers, dictators, landlords, cops, teachers, professors. Um, there's a lot of people in, in, a, in authority over us. And of course, something that really needs healing today is our universities, huh? I mean, they've been filled for decades. It's not been any secret. They're, they're by a bunch of communists. And it, it doesn't matter if it's in the history department or in the math department. They're a bunch of communists spewing communism. And, and now we're surprised that there's a couple of generations of people that, that are so far left that they're, they're literally, uh, it's almost a sickness to think that changing our country and of course they're in Portland I don't know if you saw it now they're not just burning the American flag they're burning Bibles so interesting that that these communist people who have come out of these liberal universities they hate the United States flag but they equally hate the Bible they, they tie them together and, and praise God for that there's something in our sinful nature that rebels against authority. We resent it. We rebel against it. Even if we submit to it, we're not always happy about it. And often, it's the last thought to pray for them. It's easier to complain than to pray, isn't it? And of course, then we can get a self-righteous, condemning attitude. Man, help us with that. They're never as godly as we know they should be. They're not as wise as we, we would be if we were in their shoes. And of course, they're not making the right decisions like I know how to make the right decisions. And then we complain about them. Let's be reminded today that a part of our ministry to the world is prayer. And the more specifically, prayer for those making decisions in the political realm. Presidents, vice presidents, congressmen, senators, governors, mayors, county supervisors. He says, 
Here's the key, guys. Really focus in praying for them. Interesting. What's the church? First of all, it's just a bunch of people praying. Praying at church. Praying at home. Praying on the phone. Praying on Zoom. Praying with your family. Praying with your friends. Praying on the way to work. Praying on the way to bed. We're praying, praying, praying. And then he says, secondly, that we would just, everybody would just be crying out to God for those in authority. You know, if it's a good president in our kid's situation, how much prayer does he need? If he's a wicked president, how much prayer does he need? And, of course, we need our hearts protected. So he says, pray for all the kings and those in authority that we, the result of us praying for them, is going to lead us into a life that's led by a quietness and a peacefulness and all godliness and reverence. We're not going to get caught up in the tornado. We're not going to get caught up in the whirlwind of all the wickedness going on. We're going to be walking in a godly reverence right through the midst of a wicked generation. Matthew 5, we know this well, don't we? 43 to 45. You've heard that it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, and then in verse 48, he says, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we are called to pray even harder when people are being evil towards us. So we pray for those that we love and care for. But then when the pressure's on and, and the, the, those in authority that can make our life miserable break us, hurt us financially, mess up our job, mess up where we live. Man, I've heard some of those horror stories where neighbors, you know, hate neighbors next across the street or next door, and they literally end up in jail what they do to each other. And, and they just can't stop it. It's like this thing, you hurt me, I'm gonna hurt you a little more. You hurt my child, I'm gonna hurt your kid. I'm gonna, and it's like this vicious thing, they're in this tornado and they need to get pulled out of it. That's us. We, we can easily get into that whirlwind and, and, and we need to just be this person of prayer and praying that God would bless those who spitefully use us and persecute us. That we may lead this quiet and peaceful life. This, we should pray for the government rulers that, that, that way we can simply live alone and live a Christian life. This is what he's saying. If we pray for all the leaders in our lives, there's a good chance that it could remove any thought of rebellion or resistance against them in our hearts. And it makes the people of Christ into a peacemakers, not reactionary people. Paul says this in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So again here, 
to be these ready people, not speaking bad about anybody, just keeping our eyes on the Lord, praying without ceasing. And there's this quietness, which is referring to an internal characteristic. And then he says a peaceableness, which is referring to an external peace. Boy, Paul says this a lot. Follow me, if you would, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, as we've commanded you. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11 and 12. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not walking at all, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort to our Lord Jesus Christ, they work in quietness and eat their own bread. We are to see those who are not honoring God. Matter of fact, they're speaking evil of God, speaking evil of His people, hating what God loves, making evil look good and good look evil. We need to remember that these people are not our enemies. What's it say in Ephesians 6.12? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The Greek word flesh there is the word democrat. No, it's not. It's not. And then the word blood is republican. We don't fight against democrats or republicans. No, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Man is not the issue. It's what's going on in the spiritual realm, isn't it? Against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Guys, these liberal, progressive, wicked leaders are not our enemies. They're actually our mission field. So here's some guy that God wants to see come to him. And not that many people know about him because he's just a real estate agent. But he gets him into politics, gets him to be the governor. We all know about him, and half of us hate it. And so all these Christians turn and just starts praying for this guy. Imagine, you know, a lot of Christians have left California, but it only takes a handful of us, right? If we really just started praying, and he became a born again believer. Paul's. Remember chapter 1, Paul's testimony? Talking about somebody who was anti-Christ. Talking about somebody who was in authority. And it was getting Christians arrested and put to death. And then he becomes the guy who writes half of the New Testament. I think greater things have been happened, that have happened to see some very wicked leaders. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Going to burn Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? He ends up becoming a believer. We're going to see that guy in heaven. Then remember, he, in his pride of his heart, he becomes like an animal for seven years until he humbles himself and recognizes that he didn't build the great kingdom of Babylon, but God did. And he praises God. What about Pharaohs? Think about some men that are going to be in heaven that were at one time very evil leaders kings, dictators, in authority that have become believers. 
First Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fretfully lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. They didn't notice it didn't say if they speak evil against you as evildoers. It says when they speak evil about you as evildoers. So the church is to be this praying machine. And in particular, we are praying for those in authority that our hearts remain this quiet and peaceable life in all, notice, godliness and reverence. He's referring a godliness towards God, a reverence towards God, but also a godliness towards man and a reverence towards man. And if Jesus were a Californian, okay, he would definitely vote Republican. We know that. Um, but outside of that, I don't think you would find him going around speaking evil about all the people he doesn't like in politics. Okay? Even though we know abortion is a murder, they can make it look like some amazing thing and it's so ignorant you know well, the, the woman has the right she doesn't have a right of her own body she didn't have a right to put drugs in her body that are illegal she didn't have a right to commit suicide she didn't have a right to there's a lot of a lot of things that the government has say over our bodies but we know that's that's evil but again it's not for us to go around and call people evil who stand for these things but to realize satan is who we're fighting and we have the power to rip down his kingdom. It's going to happen through spiritual means, in particular prayer. What did we learn here, looking at verse 2? Christians are to be faithfully praying for all men, especially those in power that can bless or curse us. Believers are to be marked by a contentment in morality. Holy motives must result in holy behavior both contributed to the quietness and the peacefulness of our own lives, our own souls. If the government looks and sees Christians that are quiet, living quiet lives, righteous lives, godly, tranquil lives, that are submitted to authority and pray for their leaders, it will be a great opportunity for evangelism. Remember Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors? Came right up next to Pharaoh. Of course, Nehemiah, the cupbearer. Artaxerxes, Daniel, and we, we, we see guys that we had no idea. The, the, the lowly Jews down below had no idea about the Daniels. The lowly people had no idea about the Josephs. The whole time, God's zeroing in on Pharaoh through this guy Joseph, and most of the population doesn't know about him. What, what, what if... Our governor knew some secretary is some radical born-again Christian. And, and, and religious leaders come to him and they're acting all self-righteous and they treat him rudely and, and they're telling him what a horrible, evil guy he is because he's pro-abortion and for gay rights. And, and, and here's this lady just going, you're, you're, not, you're not bringing Christ to him right now. You're, you're, you're bringing like 
some Old Testament Pharisee. You're, you're like some self-righteous prude. You're not, you're not, I, he sees me and I'm bringing the love of Jesus and you have none of that showing right now. Quit being a, a bad politician and be a Christian. Be loving and kind and, and, and be like Jesus to that guy. This, may, this could be a light, a salt right now to his life by us having, again, this respectful heart to those in authority and be praying for them that God would do something. We, we've, we know God can do anything. Well, verse 3 of 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Verse, two, verse 3 now. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So he says this, is, this behavior is acceptable to God because God's goal is salvation of men. So he says one ties into the other. So get your eyes off the things of the earth. Get your eyes on the Lord. The things of the earth that anger you and bum you out and you know are unrighteous and wicked and they're oppressing you, the lower guy down, just become this praying machine. That's what I see the church. The church affecting your nation, affecting the world through the power of the love of Christ and the kindness and the gentleness. God's Spirit gives us the ability to know this isn't our home, right? Heaven's our home. We're just pilgrims and strangers passing through. And that here we are, this praying machine, we have this quiet, respectful, honorable, godly life, which is just powerful, grinding it out day after day, 10 years, 20 years. We're this people of God with this heart of Jesus. And we're praying like crazy. We have years, decades of prayers piled up, praying for righteousness to reign in our land and God to heal our land. And he says, this is what God desires. It is good to God. This is like, it's a part of his very nature intrinsically. It's, it's obvious to all. It's, it's an obvious thing if you've been made in the image of God, and we all have, to know that this is good. And that God has this good desire. And it's acceptable to God. So... It's like your teenager coming in saying, hey, Dad, can I have the car keys? I want to go wash the car and get some gas to you know, put in the lawnmower and mow the yard and edge. And um, can I have the car keys? You're like, yeah, you can have the car keys. This is good. <laughs> this is acceptable. So in the same way, we're these living this good and acceptable life. We're praying. The church is praying. And, and now we're coming to God going, God, we want these guys to be saved. We don't want them just to get voted out. That's not going to solve the problem, is it? I mean, how many more Governor Newsom's are lined up in a row after him? Infinite amount. Because Satan's going to be around repeatedly. We're going to be fighting the same devil, the next guy, the next guy, the next guy. And you know how the politics works, right? You get a Republican for a while, and that fizzles out. And you get a Democrat for a while, and that fizzles out. And then you get another Republican, and that fizzles out. I mean, if you've been in the, you've been in the politic game for a while, the whole thing is pretty sickening. And, and you realize, you get, your, you get your guy in there who's going to do it all right, and then the coronavirus comes. And messes it all up. And so our hope is not a man. Our hope is not a politics. Our hope is in the Lord. And our goal is not 
politics. Our goal is not to get a bunch of guys that, that will vote in the way that we like them to vote. It's salvation. It's that people come to Christ and go to heaven. Do you, do you love those in authority over us as Christ loves them? Christ died for them, didn't he? Christ hung on the cross for all of their sins, just like he did yours. So this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Listen to these passages real quick in Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me, the Lord speaking, and, and be saved all the ends of the earth. Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I, will, I, have, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Acts 17, 30, God commands all men everywhere to repent. The verse we just looked at here in 1 Timothy 2, 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 4.10 refers to the Lord as the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And 2 Peter 3.9, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do we get this? In our world today, God loves Osama bin Laden. God didn't want to just see that guy dead for bombing us. God wanted him to be saved and have eternal life. When the 911 happened and the Twin Towers were destroyed. After I got out of the initial shock, I, I thought, I pictured in my mind, like God just kicking this beehive and all these bees buzzing around for Christians to wake up and realize there are billions of people on the other side of our planet that live in a very hot, hot climate. You don't even want to go there for a short time. It's very dirty, it's very poor, it's very mean. It's a Muslim world and they don't know Jesus and if you go to preach the gospel there, they'll probably kill you. If they receive the Lord there, they get killed or excommunicated and then killed. There's a billion people on our planet that does not, is not a focus of the Christians in America and they should be praying for those Muslims. You know what? I, a lot of people are going, what's a Muslim? <laughs> There's people on the other side of the planet that are Muslims and they hate us. Who are they? And all of a sudden, peop, the, the book that couldn't stay in stock was the Koran. Americans are reading the Koran like crazy to try to figure out what's the Muslim religion. Why do they hate us? But I just thought, God is saying, pray. When you look at Isaiah 19, there's three that become God's children. Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. Assyria is the area of Iran and Iraq, and it's a, it's a large area in that area that become, those three become his children in the millennial reign. Not just Israel, but Egypt and Assyria. Interesting. I think we're going to see a great revival amongst the Muslims. But I think God did that to, to wake us up. Terrorists, we don't want to see terrorists killed. We want to see terrorists get a Bible. <laughs> and start reading it and come to Christ. God, pray for the abortion doctors to get saved. Have you seen some of those movies or videos or YouTube? Doctors who are abortion doctors that get radically born again and God opens their eyes that they've been murdering babies for 20 years and now to hear their testimony after the fact, what was really going on in their heart and mind the whole time they were aborting babies. It makes you 
ashamed of yourself that you didn't pray for abortion doctors harder. Because according to this abortion doctor, every abortion doctor feels the condemnation of murdering babies. But they just keep hardening their hearts to try to push past it. I do want to make a note that just because it says God desires something doesn't mean God decrees it. So God desires all men to be saved, therefore all men will be saved. That's not the truth. There are, there are passages in the Bible. John Murray and Ned Stonehouse wrote it this way. We have found that God himself expresses an ardent desire for the fulfillment of a certain thing, which he has not decreed in his inscrutable counsel to come to pass. Thus, in this case, God desires all men to be saved, but it is, it, but it is their willful rejection of God that sends them to hell. In other words, man doesn't go to hell because God wills it. God wills that they be saved, but their will hardens against God and their wickedness, and they go to hell. God does wish men to be saved. That's his heart. And then in verse 5 and 6, we get some crazy, neat doctrinal passages. Verse 5, there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He makes it clear there. I'm sure in Ephesus they were saying there's many different religions that are all equally good. You know, you got the big wheel with the spoke and all the spokes lead to the hub. So if it's being a good person or Muslim religion or Hinduism or whatever, they all lead to God and God will take whatever path you choose in sincerity and receive it. Doesn't matter what religion. No, that's from the pit of hell. There's one God that can bring salvation. I have several passages there for you in Deuteronomy. I'll read a couple of there. In Deuteronomy 4.35, To you it has shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God, and there is none other besides him. I'll read another one over in Isaiah 45, verse 5 and 6. I am the Lord, and there is none other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that you may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, there is none There is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is one God, and that one God the Father has given us the one mediator, his Son, Jesus Christ, one to intervene between God and man. Now, some hate this. Why is there only one way? That just seems wrong. I, I, I won't receive a God that's so narrow-minded He only has one way of salvation unless you're in that one way you, you can't. You know, I, I like a God who says there's many ways to come to me. That, that would be like somebody say, I'm not going to receive your cure to cancer until there's many ways that will cure my cancer. Or would you be thankful that there's one way to cure your cancer? You know, you, you go to the pilot on the plane and he says, we're, we're, there's one way to get to our destination. You get on the plane going, I'm not going to fly with the narrow-minded pilot. There should be many ways <laughs> to get to our destination. Right? I mean, aren't you glad that a brain surgeon is like got this tiny little needle and he's trying to touch one little tiny part of your brain and touch no other? It's very specific. That's, that's the way truth is. That would be like a guy saying, you know, I don't want to buy gas. I just, I'm going to just put water in my gas tank. 
So I think it's narrow-minded. Those engineers make a car you can only put gas in. How narrow-minded. I'm just going to put water. And the engine doesn't work. Well, there's only, it's not going to work with water. In the same way, God giving one way of salvation is not narrow. It's merciful. It's incredible. The Bible's clear. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, there is, there is there, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, referring to Jesus. All men who come to God must come through Jesus and him alone, the one mediator. Job realizes his condition. He's flattened. Everything's been destroyed. All his kids are dead. His body is, is just falling apart. And, and he realizes, none of, none of these things bother me. <laughs> the thing that bothers me is that I'm a sinner, and I'm going to be seeing God, and there's nothing to connect between me and God. And in Job 9.32, he says this, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on bo us both. Let him take his rod away from me and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. But then later on, Job, grieving over the lack of a mediator, prophetically says, a mediator's coming. In Job 19, 25 to 27, For I know that my Redeemer lives, the one who's going to buy me out of my bondage, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. How man knows he's a sinner. He knows he's going to live after this life. There's people that want to believe that once they die, that's it. Lights go out. Their body becomes fertilizer for the grass to grow greener. That's the end of the story. But Ecclesiastes says God's put eternity in everybody's heart. That man knows he's going to live after this human flesh. And he's going to stand before God, whether he's recognized God on his days or not. And there's only one hope, and that is if God gives us a mediator, and he has through Jesus Christ. And it says that in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 2, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He gave himself. John 10, 17 and 18. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Jesus gave himself as a ransom. The word ransom communicates the idea of a substitution or that Christ died in our place. Jesus died in our place and he bore our sins. Jesus did not merely pay a price to free us, like you pay 30 shekels of silver to buy a slave in, in Christ's time. I want this slave to go free. Here's 30 pieces of silver. Now be free. He didn't simply pay the price, 
But Jesus Himself became that price when He was punished on the cross in our place. The Lord freely gave us His life for our sins on the cross to ransom our lives from sin. The book of Hebrews explains that we have a very unique mediator who gives us a new covenant, a better covenant. And in Hebrews 10, you'll find this in Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 12, but also in Hebrews 10, 14, it says this, For by the one offering He, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So when He said on the cross, it's finished, He really did finish our work, paying the ransom freely for us to receive. And He did this for all men. All men can be saved. And boy, we need that because we can't do it ourselves. We can't get to Him because we are too weak. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't come to God based on our own good deeds. Isaiah 64.6 says, Our righteous deeds are as filthy garments before God. And that He did not... He did not leave us doomed to die in our sins. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some of you guys might be hearing this tonight, maybe through social media, maybe through live stream, maybe on the radio, maybe another way. And this is God speaking to you, that Christ has given you this one way of salvation, and it's good for all men, whoever will come, let them come. And this testimony comes in the due time. Literally the fullness of time, the right time, the proper time, the perfect time. God gave His Son. This is something that Christ always knew in Galatians 4. It says, When in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In Romans 5, 6-8, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And of course, we find that this is always God's plan. In Revelation 13, 8, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him, referring to the Antichrist, whose name have not been written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain, here's the key, the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. That God saw that Jesus would die for our sins at a perfect time. And He saw that before the foundations of the world were ever laid. And so we are called to pray because the world needs a Savior. And Jesus has done it all. All men can come. It's good for all men. So now it's for us to pray. For who? For all men. We pray for all men because Christ died for all men. And all men can come if they're willing to come to Jesus and have that salvation. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And we thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the doctrine. We thank you for the insight. We're sort of overwhelmed. It's so uh, detailed in so many ways. But we know that the truth that man is a sinner and they have one way of salvation through you, Jesus, it's hard for them to stomach. Satan has really blinded their eyes. Satan has really hardened their hearts. And we know the power is in our hands. If your people 
will become the people of prayer that you desire us to be, we, you will hear from heaven. You will heal our land. And more importantly, you'll bring men into salvation. And we'll be standing honorably, godly, reverently in the midst of a very wicked world like Daniel did, like Joseph did, like so many men like Paul standing before Nero, that we will be men of God after your own heart who do all your will. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.